Hey, you're about to hear me read the second part of Groya and the Law Society of Upper Canada, which has both the concurring and dissenting opinions. If you want to hear part one of this case and hear mine and Zach's chit-chat on the case and what we thought of it, head on over to part one, which is episode eight. Enjoy! Groya and the Law Society of Upper Canada, separate decision, concurring opinion of Justice Cote. The following reasons are delivered by Justice Cote. I agree with my colleague Justice Moldaver that the Law Society appeal panel erred in finding that Mr. Groya committed professional misconduct in the course of defending his client, Mr. Feldehoff. However, I write separately to express my disagreement as to the applicable standard of review. In my view, the appeal panel's finding of professional misconduct is reviewable on the correctness standard on the basis that the impugned conduct occurred in a courtroom, as discussed by Appeal Justice Brown in his dissenting reasons in the Court of Appeal. I concur with the majority's disposition of the case because the appeal panel's conclusion that Mr. Groya committed professional misconduct was incorrect. As always, when it comes to the standard of review, our approach is guided by Dunsmuir and New Brunswick. That case prescribes a two-step analysis. First, we must look at our existing jurisprudence to ascertain whether the appropriate degree of deference has already been determined. Second, if an analysis of existing precedent does not prove fruitful, we must look to the relevant contextual factors to determine whether the correctness standard or the reasonable standard is appropriate. Applying that approach here, our existing jurisprudence does not dictate the standard of review in this appeal. Although Law Society of New Brunswick and Ryan and Doré and Barreau de Quebec involved professional misconduct allegations, the context of this case is different in one critical and dispositive respect. The impugned conduct occurred before a judge in open court. As I discussed below, the fact that the relevant conduct occurred in a court of law implicates constitutional imperatives about the judiciary's independence and its capacity to control its own processes. The nature of the impugned conduct therefore distinguishes this case from both Ryan and Doré. Turning to an analysis of the contextual factors, Dunsmuir instructs that, quote, deference will usually result where a tribunal is interpreting its own statute, end quote, as is the case here. But the presumption is just that, a presumption that can be rebutted not an inviolable command that is carved in stone. Dunsmuir permits, indeed, it expressly envisions, that the presumption of reasonableness will be rebutted in the, quote, exceptional other case, end quote. This is such a case. The fact that the impugned conduct occurred in a courtroom rebuts the presumption of reasonableness. I agree, on this point, with Appeal Justice Brown's dissenting reasons in the court below. Correctness review is required because the Law Society of Upper Canada's inquiry into in-court professional misconduct, quote, engages the contours of the constitutional relationship between the courts and government regulators, end quote. Judicial independence is, without question, a cornerstone of Canadian democracy. It is essential to both the impartiality of the judiciary and the maintenance of the rule of law. As Chief Justice Dixon remarked more than 30 years ago, quote, the role of the courts as resolver of disputes, interpreter of the law, and defender of the Constitution requires that they be completely separate in authority and function from all other participants in the justice system, end quote. 
an inquiry by a law society into a lawyer's in-court conduct, risks intruding on the judge's judicial function of managing the trial process, and his authority to sanction improper behavior. It does so by casting a shadow over court proceedings. In effect, chilling potential speech and advocacy through the threat of ex-post punishment, even where the trial judge offered the lawyer no indication that his or her conduct crossed the line. And it permits an administrative body to second-guess the boundaries of permissible advocacy in a courtroom that is ultimately supervised by an independent and impartial judge. I do not contest that the Law Society has the statutory authority to sanction in-court conduct. However, the contextual reality that must be considered when determining the standard of review for such decisions is that the courtroom is, quote, the workplace of the independent judiciary, end quote. To protect this independence and the authority of judges to manage the proceedings before them in the manner they see fit, the judiciary, not a regulatory body, a creature of the political branches of government, should have the final say over the appropriateness of the lawyer's conduct in that sphere. The reasonableness standard of review, which requires judicial deference to a law society's disciplinary determinations, is inconsistent with this prerogative. Therefore, correctness review is required to ensure proper respect for the judiciary's constitutionally guaranteed place in our democracy. Assuming, without deciding, that the appeal panel adopted the correct test for professional misconduct, I conclude that its application of the test to Mr. Groya's conduct was incorrect. As a result, I concur with the majority that the appeal panel erred in finding that Mr. Groya committed professional misconduct. As Justice Moldaver describes, the appeal panel effectively disregarded its own stated approach, using Mr. Groya's sincerely held but erroneous legal beliefs to support its conclusion that he engaged in professional misconduct. Once that factor is set aside, there is little else upon which a finding of professional misconduct could be correctly made. In particular, I find it relevant that the presiding judge elected to adopt a relatively passive approach to confronting Mr. Groya's aggressive tactics, even in face of repeated requests from the prosecution to sanction his behavior. This was well within the scope of legitimate options open to the judge in the context of this trial. But as a consequence, Mr. Groya was entitled to rely on the judge's responses, or lack thereof, in calibrating his litigation strategy. Once the judge did intervene, Mr. Groya largely complied with his instructions, and the second phase of the trial ran smoothly. The appeal panel failed to give appropriate weight to these considerations. I also agree with Justice Moldaver that the uncertain state of the law regarding the manner in which abusive process allegations should be raised weighs against a finding of professional misconduct. We rightly expect that lawyers will push the boundaries of the law where appropriate in advancing the interests of their clients. The law would stagnate in the absence of creative and novel legal argumentation. Although this does not give lawyers free license to knowingly advance frivolous or completely baseless positions, we must be sensitive to the potential chilling effect on legal advocacy when assessing the jurisprudential context in which alleged misconduct occurs. Here, I am prepared to err on the side of accepting that there was some procedural uncertainty, which the appeal panel did not account for, that contextualizes the frequency of Mr. Groya's allegations. This, too, undermines the correctness of the appeal panel's ultimate conclusion. For these reasons, I would allow the appeal I agree with Justice Moldaver's disposition as to costs. I also agree that there is no need to remit the matter back to the Law Society. 
The following dissenting reasons are delivered by Justices Karakatsanis, Gascon, and Rowe. Part 1. Introduction. We have read the reasons of our colleague Justice Moldaver and agree with him on a number of key issues. We agree that reasonableness is the applicable standard of review. We also agree that the simple fact that a lawyer's behavior occurs in the courtroom does not deprive the Law Society of Upper Canada of its legitimate role in regulating the profession, nor does it justify heightened judicial scrutiny. Lastly, we agree that, in articulating a standard of professional misconduct, the Law Society Appeal Panel reasonably set out a contextual approach which will vary according to the particular factual matrix in which it is applied. However, we disagree with Justice Moldaver's disposition in this appeal. In our view, the appeal panel's decision was reasonable. The panel set out an approach for assessing whether Mr. Groya had committed professional misconduct and faithfully applied it. Its analysis was cogent, logical, transparent, and grounded in the evidence. Its decision achieved a reasonable balance of its statutory obligations and an advocate's freedom of expression. There is no basis to interfere. We also have a number of concerns about Justice Moldaver's application of the reasonableness standard. Respectfully, we are of the view that he fundamentally misstates the appeal panel's approach to professional misconduct and re-weighs the evidence to reach a different result. This is inconsistent with reasonableness review as it substitutes this court's judgment for that of the legislature's chosen decision maker. Further, we have serious concerns about the impacts that will follow from our colleagues' analysis and disposition of this appeal. Part 2, Analysis, Subpart A, The Reasonableness Standard. Judicial review upholds the rule of law and legislative supremacy. In most instances, both principles can be sustained by deferring to the legislature's delegated decision-making. Such deference recognizes that delegated authorities will have greater expertise in matters under their scope of authority and are better situated than courts to choose from among the range of reasonable outcomes. Where, as here, the standard of review analysis leads to the application of reasonableness, deference is not optional. In Dunsmuir, this court defined reasonableness as concerned, quote, mostly with the existence of justification, transparency, and intelligibility within the decision-making process, end quote, and, quote, with whether the decision falls within a range of possible acceptable outcomes which are defensible in respect to the facts and law, end quote. On one hand, reasonableness is a threshold that decision-makers must satisfy with regard to both the process of articulating the reasons and to outcomes. On the other hand, reasonableness prescribes a method of review that requires courts to begin their analyses with respectful attention to the reasons offered or which could be offered. In applying the reasonableness standard, deference bars a reviewing court from conducting an exacting criticism of the decision in order to reach the result that the decision was unreasonable. It follows that a reviewing court also cannot supplement the decision-maker's reasoning for the purpose of undermining it. Neither may a reviewing court reweigh evidence or contextual factors considered by the decision-maker. Fundamentally, reviewing courts cannot simply, quote, pay lip service to the concept of reasonableness review while in fact imposing their own view, end quote. At all times, the starting point for reasonableness review is the reasons for the decision under review. Subpart B, the appeal panel's decision was reasonable. For the reasons that follow, we would find the appeal panel's decision was reasonable. 1. The appeal panel's approach to civility and professional misconduct. 
The appeal panel started its analysis by examining lawyers' professional conduct obligations and the concept of civility. It reviewed the rules and codes of conduct as they appeared at the time of the Felderhof trial as well as related commentary, and noted the need to balance a lawyer's expressive rights with his or her professional obligations. The appeal panel also highlighted the impact of uncivil behavior on the administration of justice. The panel noted that incivility is about more than hurt feelings. Attacks on integrity of one's opponent risk disrupting a trial and risk rendering opposing counsel ineffective. Following its detailed analysis of the importance of civility in the legal profession, the appeal panel articulated its approach to determining when uncivil courtroom behavior crosses the line. This approach is, quote, fundamentally contextual and fact-specific, end quote, so as to take into account the trial context and avoid a chilling effect on zealous advocacy. All of the surrounding circumstances must be considered. The appeal panel noted, the trial judge's reaction, while relevant to an assessment of misconduct, is not determinative. The appeal panel then narrowed its focus to the issue arising in Mr. Groya's case. Quote, the extent to which zealous defense counsel may impugn the integrity of opposing counsel and make allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, end quote. The panel said, quote, in our view, it is professional misconduct to make allegations of prosecutorial misconduct or that impugn the integrity of opposing counsel unless they are both made in good faith and have a reasonable basis. A bona fide belief is insufficient. It gives too much license to irresponsible counsel with sincere but nevertheless unsupportable suspicions of opposing counsel. End quote. In addition, even when a lawyer honestly and reasonably believes that opposing counsel is engaging in prosecutorial misconduct or professional misconduct more generally, she must avoid use of invective to raise the issue. That is, it is unprofessional to make submissions about opposing counsel's improper conduct, to paraphrase Justice Campbell, in a, quote, repetitive stream of invective that attacks the counsel's professional integrity, end quote. Notably, the appeal panel determined that any allegations of professional misconduct or that impugn the integrity of opposing counsel must be made in good faith and with a reasonable basis. Even where these two requirements are met, lawyers must be respectful and avoid the use of invective. The appeal panel was clear that any such allegations must be considered in context. The requirement to consider good faith and reasonableness are necessarily informed by the way the trial unfolded. We agree with Appeal Justice Cronk, writing for the majority of the Ontario Court of Appeal, that the quote, highly contextual and fact-specific nature of incivility necessarily requires affording the disciplinary body leeway in fashioning a test that is appropriate in the circumstances of the particular case, end quote. Here, there is no doubt that it was open to the appeal panel to adopt the approach it did. The panel's reasoning was nuanced and flexible, responsive to the particular factual matrix in which it applied. This approach flowed directly from the panel's thorough consideration of the rules, related commentary, and the jurisprudence. The adaptability of this approach ensures that it will not sanction zealous advocacy. It ensures that the context in which the impugned conduct occurred will be adequately accounted for, from the trial judge's reaction to the, quote, dynamics, complexity, and particular burdens and stakes of the trial, end quote. 
Importantly, the panel noted that professional misconduct is about more than mere rudeness. Rather, the focus is on allegations of prosecutorial misconduct or that impugn the integrity of the opponent. Respectfully, we consider that Justice Moldaver reformulates the appeal panel's approach to professional misconduct. While he acknowledges the appropriateness of its chosen contextual approach, he effectively reframes the appeal panel's approach as consisting of three factors. One, what the lawyer said, two, the manner in which it was said, and three, the trial judge's reaction. Tellingly, while not found in the appeal panel's reasons, this formulation closely resembles the test urged by Mr. Groya and the dissenting judge of the Ontario Court of Appeal, both of whom advocated a correctness standard of review. As noted above, the panel did not opt for such a restrictive framework and instead adopted a fact-specific and contextual approach for ascertaining professional misconduct. Two, the appeal panel's assessment of the case. We turn now to the appeal panel's application of its approach to the facts of this case. In our view, the appeal panel's analysis of the Feldhoff trial was a faithful and reasonable application of the approach outlined. A, whether Mr. Groya had a reasonable basis for his allegations. Because the appeal panel did not have the benefit of hearing Mr. Groya's testimony, it assumed that Mr. Groya, quote, held an honest belief in his allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, end quote. On this basis, the appeal panel assumed Mr. Groya was acting in good faith. The appeal panel clearly stated, however, that, quote, it is professional misconduct to make such allegations unless they are both made in good faith and have a reasonable basis, end quote. The appeal panel thus suggested that the Law Society can still consider the reasonableness of a lawyer's allegation even when they are made in good faith, in that they arise from a mistaken but sincerely held belief. As such, the panel's reasons focus primarily on whether Mr. Groya had a reasonable basis for his allegation of prosecutorial misconduct and his comments that impugn the integrity of his opponents. Mr. Groya argues that he had such a basis. The appeal panel disagreed. In our view, it was open to the appeal panel to do so. The appeal panel's reasons demonstrate that it considered both the factual and legal underpinnings of Mr. Groy's claims to determine whether they had a reasonable basis. As the panel noted, being wrong on the law is itself not a basis for professional misconduct in most situations. However, it is clear from the passages cited above that the appeal panel was concerned with more than just whether Mr. Groya's legal submissions were correct or not. Errors of law may be so egregious that submissions based on those errors have no reasonable basis. Put another way, allegations made in good faith may constitute professional misconduct if they have no reasonable legal basis. In our view, it was open to the panel to consider both the factual and legal basis for the allegations at issue. The appeal panel's mandate permits it to determine, quote, any question of fact or law that arises in a proceeding before it, end quote. Indeed, the Law Society rules govern civility and competence. One rule that Mr. Groy was accused of having breached prohibits, quote, ill-considered or uninformed criticism of the competence, conduct, advice, or charges of other legal practitioners. 
This standard can only be applied with some reference to the basic legal information a reasonable lawyer is expected to possess or seek out before criticizing another lawyer's professional conduct. The appeal panel's choice to require a reasonable basis for the submissions indicates its intention to weed out egregious mistakes of law. As such, the panel was entitled to consider whether there is a reasonable basis for the allegations where a lawyer alleges prosecutorial misconduct or impugns the integrity of opposing counsel. Reasonableness, as opposed to good faith, implies consideration of whether the allegations, objectively, had a legal or factual basis. This approach simply permits the appeal panel to consider, as a whole, the reasonableness of allegations that raise prosecutorial misconduct or impugn the integrity of opposing counsel within the context of the proceedings. This is justified by the serious consequences that irresponsible attacks can have on opposing counsel's reputation, as well as the public perception of the justice system. Following the appeal panel's review of the evidence, the panel concluded that there was no reasonable basis in factor in law for Mr. Groya's allegations against the Ontario Securities Commission prosecutors. It held that there was no foundation for Mr. Groya's allegations and that there was nothing to suggest that either the OSC or the prosecutors were dishonest or intentionally attempting to subvert the defense or that prosecutors were too busy or lazy to comply with their obligations. While the prosecutor's actions, quote, may well have formed the basis for an aggressive attack on the Crown's case, end quote, they did not provide a reasonable basis for repeated allegations of deliberate prosecutorial misconduct. These conclusions were open to the appeal panel. They flowed directly from the appeal panel's thorough consideration of the evidence. The panel, quote, reviewed Mr. Groya's remarks in their context, often by relying on Mr. Groya's own explanations in the course of the hearing panel proceeding, end quote, and gave Mr. Groya the benefit of the doubt whenever possible. It considered the conduct of the prosecutors to determine whether Mr. Groya's allegations had a basis in the record. However, despite this balanced review on the evidence, the panel found that, quote, nothing the prosecutors did justified Mr. Groya's onslaught, end quote. In our view, it was open to the appeal panel to conclude that there was no reasonable basis in factor in law for Mr. Groya's allegations of prosecutorial misconduct and his comments that impugned the integrity of his opponents. Justice Muldaver takes a different view of the appeal panel's reasoning respecting the reasonable basis requirement. He suggests that the appeal panel determined that a lawyer's bona fide legal mistakes can never ground a finding of professional misconduct. He therefore concludes that Mr. Groya's good faith though mistaken belief that the OSC prosecutor's actions were contrary to law, in part, quote, provided the reasonable basis for his allegations, end quote. Respectfully, we are of the view that a reviewing court should give effect to the appeal panel's decision and adopt the approach with both subjective and objective considerations, i.e. to require good faith and a reasonable basis. We would not collapse the distinction between these criteria by restricting the appeal panel's ability to assess the reasonableness of legal submissions to determining whether the lawyer was acting in good faith. The majority's approach effectively creates a novel mistake of law defense. A lawyer will have a, quote, reasonable basis, end quote, for allegations of misconduct anytime his beliefs as to the law, if they were correct, would create such a basis. This makes the reasonable basis requirement dependent on the subjective legal beliefs of the lawyer. As such, 
Any accusations grounded in an honestly held legal belief will be immune from law society's sanction, irrespective of how baseless the legal belief is. However, the appeal panel explicitly rejected the idea that whenever a lawyer's accusations are based on an honestly held belief in the law, they necessarily have a reasonable basis. As discussed above, the panel was of the view that allegations must have a reasonable legal basis to be justifiable, and that this inquiry should not focus solely on the subjective beliefs of the lawyer. It is not a respectful reading of the appeal panel's reasons to articulate a novel test for professional misconduct, then fault the panel for failing to apply it. It was open to the appeal panel to hold that a lawyer who erroneously alleges prosecutorial misconduct or impugns the integrity of opposing counsel should not be shielded from professional sanction because of his or her own incompetence. Justice Moldaver also takes issue with the appeal panel's finding that Mr. Groya had no reasonable factual basis for his accusations. The appeal panel's decision respecting Mr. Groya was based in part on its conclusion that it is professional misconduct to make allegations that, quote, impugn the integrity of opposing counsel, end quote, without a reasonable basis to do so. The panel found that Mr. Groya, quote, repeatedly cast aspersions, end quote, on Mr. Nasser, accusing him of reneging on promises when Mr. Nasser contested the admissibility of certain documents. The panel determined, however, that these allegations had no factual basis. Justice Moldaver states that it was not reasonably open to the appeal panel to find that Mr. Groya's allegations lacked a reasonable factual basis. This, according to his analysis, is because the panel should have appreciated how Mr. Groya's legal mistakes, quote, colored his understanding of the facts, end quote. With respect, the appeal panel was entitled to make the finding a fact it made. Reasonableness review of a decision requires deferential consideration of the rationales of the decision-maker. B. The appeal panel's weighing of the evidence. In determining whether Mr. Groy's allegations crossed the line into professional misconduct, the appeal panel applied its expertise and decided how to assess the evidence as a whole. The appeal panel focused, for example, on the disrespectful manner in which Mr. Groya made his allegations. The panel noted Mr. Groya's sarcastic use of the word government to describe the OSC lawyers. The panel found that it was wrong to use the term, quote, as a way of casting aspersions on opposing counsel without reasonable basis, end quote. The panel also highlighted numerous instances in which Mr. Groya directly attacked the integrity of his opponents in a harsh and cutting way. On the issue of the admission of documents, Mr. Groya repeatedly commented that he could not enter a document, quote, because the government isn't prepared to stand by its representations to this court, end quote, and because the prosecutors, quote, don't live up to their promises, end quote. Mr. Groya also remarked, quote, my friend doesn't like the fact that he is being held to statements he made in open court. I am sorry he made those submissions, end quote, and asked the judge, quote, is my friend ever going to explain to this court, or God forbid, ever apologize to this court for the government's conduct in this case? End quote. When arguing about the admissibility of a National Post article, Mr. Groya said, quote, I am heartened to see that your honor is no more able to get a straight answer out of the prosecutor than the defense has been. End quote. The appeal panel also placed significant weight on the cumulative impact of Mr. Groya's comments. 
Mr. Groya's comments built on one another throughout the course of the Feldhoff trial, and the panel therefore found it necessary to measure their cumulative effects rather than considering each in isolation. Following its consideration of the evidence as a whole, the appeal panel concluded that Mr. Groya had engaged in professional misconduct. While the appeal panel noted that certain of Mr. Groya's comments did not cross the line into professional misconduct, it concluded that his conduct, when considered cumulatively, can, quote, best be described as a relentless personal attack on the integrity of the bona fides of the prosecutors, end quote. The panel also determined that Mr. Groya's behavior had a negative impact on the trial and on the administration of justice. In light of all the facts at play, the panel concluded that Mr. Groya's allegations crossed the line and warranted sanction. In our view, it was open to the panel to weigh the evidence in the way it did. Its findings regarding the disrespectful way that Mr. Groya made his allegations were amply supported by the record, as were its conclusions on the cumulative effects of his conduct. Ultimately, the reasons support the appeal panel's conclusion that Mr. Groya was engaged in professional misconduct. Both the evidentiary foundation and the logic of the reasons were sound. The decision is justifiable, intelligible, and transparent, and falls within the range of reasonable outcomes. Justice Moldaver takes issue with the way that the appeal panel weighed the evidence before it. He would reduce the weight assigned to the manner and effects of Mr. Groya's comments because the state of the law regarding abuse of process was uncertain at the time of the Feldhoff trial. We cannot agree that the appeal panel was unreasonable in failing to take such an approach. Most notably, Mr. Groya never raised the unsettled state of the law regarding abuse of process before the appeal panel. To criticize the appeal panel's reasons for failing to consider an argument never raised before it has no basis in reasonableness review. Adding another matter that the appeal panel ought to have considered is a means of reweighing the evidence, which is inappropriate on deferential review. Furthermore, whatever uncertainty there was regarding the timing of when abusive process allegations should be made, there was no uncertainty about the underlying rules of professional ethics and law of evidence upon which Mr. Groya had launched his volleys of ill-considered attacks. Justice Moldaver also places significant weight on the trial judge's reticence to intervene when Mr. Groya made his allegations. However, the appeal panel paid close attention to the interventions that the trial judge made in the course of the proceedings, but noted that a trial judge's interventions are not a determinative consideration. The panel was entitled to determine that other factors warranted more weight in the circumstances of the case. In the same vein, Justice Moldaver would also discount the manner in which Mr. Groya made his allegations on the basis that the trial judge had not intervened. In our view, the appeal panel was entitled to place substantial weight on Mr. Groya's use of unnecessary invective. Justice Moldaver used the trial judge's lack of intervention in respect to Mr. Groya's legal errors as an indication that the panel was unreasonable in concluding Mr. Groya's allegations lacked a factual foundation. With respect, we consider that it is within the panel's statutory responsibility to assess the reasonableness of lawyers' submissions. The fact that a trial judge did not tell Mr. Groya that he was wrong in law did not require the panel to find that his submissions were reasonable. Thus, we cannot agree with Justice Moldaver's application of the reasonableness standard. In our view, he misstates the appeal panel's approach and reweighs the evidence in order to reach a different result. 
Our colleague may have preferred choices other than those made in the appeal panel. However, that is no basis to intervene on judicial review and rebalance the scales. In reasonableness review, courts must resist the temptation to come to a conclusion different than the tribunals, particularly where there is a logical and evidentiary underpinning for the tribunal's conclusion. 3. Conclusion on the reasonableness of the appeal panel's decision. For over 200 years, the legislature has delegated to the Law Society the authority to determine both the rules of professional conduct for the profession and their interpretation. Recognizing this expertise, this court has consistently held that law societies should be afforded deference. The Law Society is a specialized body. Here, it was applying its own rules to a specific case that fell within the core of its expertise. Because of the Law Society's broad mandate, this is not one of the, quote, rare occasions where only one defensible outcome exists, end quote. The existence of reasonableness review is, rather, premised on the fact that, quote, certain questions that come before administrative tribunals do not lend themselves to one specific particular result, end quote. For the reasons set out above, we are of the view that there is no basis on the record to interfere with the appeal panel's decision. The panel articulated an approach for professional misconduct that flowed directly from its consideration of the rules, commentary, and jurisprudence. It faithfully followed its approach based on the evidence respecting Phase 1 of the Feldehoff trial and concluded that Mr. Groya had no reasonable basis for the allegations he made against the OSC prosecutors. It then weighted the whole of the evidence and determined that when considered in light of all relevant factors, Mr. Groya's comments constituted professional misconduct. The panel's logic, rationales, and conclusion were reasonable. We would also find that the appeal panel's decision proportionately balanced the value of freedom of expression with its mandate to ensure that lawyers conduct themselves professionally. As this court noted in Doré, quote, in the charter context, the reasonableness analysis is one that centers on proportionality, that is, on ensuring that the decision interferes with the relevant charter guarantee no more than is necessary given the statutory objective, end quote. The appeal panel was alert to the importance of lawyers' expressive freedoms and the critical role of zealous advocacy in our system. In order to ensure that these principles were limited no more than necessary, the appeal panel adopted a contextual approach that took into account the dynamics of the courtroom setting. In addition, the appeal panel gave Mr. Groya the benefit of the doubt and assumed that he acted in good faith. However, it was open to the appeal panel to determine that at a certain point, the cumulative effect of Mr. Groya's allegations meant that the balance shifted and that there was need for a limit on Mr. Groya's conduct. It was reasonable for the appeal panel to conclude that in the context of this trial, zealous advocacy did not require Mr. Groya to make unfounded allegations of prosecutorial misconduct or impugn the integrity of his opponents or to frequently resort to invective when describing them. Finally, we note that all of the adjudicators and judges who reviewed this decision on the standard of reasonableness also concluded that the appeal panel's ultimate finding of misconduct was reasonable. The only person to conclude that Mr. Groya's conduct did not amount to misconduct was the dissenting judge at the Ontario Court of Appeal, who applied a correctness standard of review. This court should resist the temptation to substitute its view on what the appeal panel should have done. The focus on a reasonableness review is on the appeal panel's actual reasons. 
In this case, the appeal panel's decision was reasonable. C. The impacts of allowing this appeal. We have a number of concerns about the implications that follow from Justice Muldaver's reasons. Respectfully, we are concerned that they immunize erroneous allegations from law society's sanction, validate improper conduct, and threaten to undermine the administration of justice and the culture change that this court has called for in recent years. One, immunizing accusations based on honestly believed legal errors. As discussed, Justice Muldaver's reasons effectively create a mistake of law defense that immunizes lawyers from professional sanction whenever their allegations are based on honestly held legal beliefs. In our view, this approach would potentially immunize lawyers who make accusations based on erroneous, unsupportable, or even reckless beliefs about the law. Allowing any honestly held belief to provide a reasonable basis for allegations of prosecutorial misconduct taken to its logical conclusion means that the more outrageous the lawyer's legal belief is, the more justified his allegations of impropriety become. This approach creates an unduly high threshold for professional misconduct, one that could effectively dispossess the law societies of their regulatory authority, respecting incivility any time a lawyer can cloak his accusations in a subjective legal belief. 2. Validating uncivil conduct. We are concerned that allowing this appeal will be seen as a validation of Mr. Groya's conduct and will undermine the law society's ability to sanction unprofessional conduct. The appeal panel determined that even if a lawyer has a reasonable basis for an allegation of prosecutorial misconduct, quote, she must avoid the use of invective to raise the issue, end quote. This is a reasonable approach. The rules of professional conduct were, and remain today, crystal clear that counsel must treat witnesses, other lawyers, and the court with fairness, courtesy, and respect. In setting aside the decision of the appeal panel, Justice Muldaver, however, says little concerning the inappropriate manner in which Mr. Groya brought his allegations. Instead, he says that, quote, strong language will regularly be necessary to bring forward allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. With respect, we take a contrary view. We cannot agree with any suggestion that Mr. Groya's conduct was permissible, let alone necessary. As the appeal panel noted, Justice Campbell initially found that it was unnecessary for Mr. Groya to make his submissions respecting prosecutorial misconduct in the repetitive stream of invective he did. He described Mr. Groya's conduct as, quote, appallingly unrestrained and on occasion unprofessional, inappropriate, extreme, and unacceptable, end quote. The judge noted that on one occasion, Mr. Groya's conduct more resembled, quote, guerrilla theater than advocacy in court, end quote. Appeal Justice Rosenberg of the Court of Appeal substantially agreed with these characterizations and called Mr. Groya's rhetoric improper. It is true that the appeal panel did not treat the view of these two judges as determinative. It, in fact, recognized that the comments of Justice Campbell and Appeal Justice Rosenberg should be given limited weight. Nonetheless, we note that after reviewing the entire record of the Feldhoff trial, the panel came to a similar conclusion about Mr. Groya's conduct. We agree with the appeal panel that there is no excuse for the manner in which Mr. Groya brought his allegations. It is when lawyers are tested with challenging situations that the requirements of civility become more important. When lawyers are raising difficult issues like prosecutorial misconduct, they are nonetheless, quote, constrained by their profession to do so with dignified restraint, end quote. Motions respecting prosecutorial misconduct, quote, can and should be conducted without the kind of rhetoric engaged by Mr. Groya, end quote. 
zealous advocacy did not require that he, quote, frequently resort to invective in describing opponents who were trying to do their jobs, end quote. By assigning limited weight to the manner in which Mr. Groya brought his allegations, Justice Muldaver's reasons can be read as setting a benchmark for professional misconduct that permits sustained and sarcastic personal attacks on opposing counsel. In our view, there is simply no place in Canadian courtrooms for this type of conduct. Deciding that the Law Society cannot sanction the allegations that Mr. Groya unleashed on his opponents sends the wrong message to those who look to this court for guidance. 3. Undermining the administration of justice. Finally, we are concerned about the broader impact of setting aside the appeal panel's decision on the culture of the legal profession and the administration of justice. The appeal panel quite reasonably stated that professionalism is a key component of the efficient resolution of disputes. Uncivil, abrasive, hostile, or obstructive conduct, quote, necessarily impedes the goal of resolving conflicts rationally, peacefully, and efficiently, in turn delaying or even denying justice. It distracts not only counsel, who become preoccupied with defending their own integrity rather than advocating for their clients' interests, but also triers of fact, who are required to weigh in on acrimonious personal disputes rather than focusing on the trial. More importantly though, unprofessional attacks erode the relationship of mutual respect that is crucial to resolving disputes efficiently. When this occurs, even minor disagreements become more protracted. Issues that might have been resolved out of court become subject to vigorous argument, taking up court time and costing litigants money unnecessarily. The appeal panel's recognition of the importance of civility to the administration of justice is consistent with this court's repeated calls to address access to justice concerns. In the Queen and Jordan, the majority challenged all participants in the justice system to, quote, work in concert to achieve speedier trials, end quote, and pushed Crown and Defense Counsel to collaborate where appropriate and use court time efficiently. The majority stated that, quote, all courts, including this court, must be mindful of the impact of their decisions on the conduct of trials, end quote. Similarly, in Herniac and Malden, this court called for a culture change in civil context as a means of promoting timely and affordable access to justice. The court specifically called on trial counsel to be cognizant of the pressures on the justice system and, quote, act in a way that facilitates rather than frustrates access to justice, end quote. Finally, in the Queen and Cody, this court renewed the calls set out above and set out specific guidelines for judges and counsel alike to do what they can to improve the efficiency of the court system. Condoning Mr. Groya's conduct risks eroding civility in courtrooms and increasing the pressures on an already strained system. Moreover, setting aside the decision of the appeal panel has the potential to undermine the ability of law societies to promote the efficient resolution of disputes. Law societies are important actors in the culture change we need. Through their enabling legislation, they are provided with the authority to sanction lawyers who commit professional misconduct and, in turn, promote efficiency in our system. They should be empowered to do that, not undermined through second-guessing by the courts. Their decisions respecting professional misconduct should be approached with deference. Part 3. Conclusion We are of the view that this appeal should be dismissed. 
A respectful reading of the appeal panel's reasons makes clear that the panel's decision was a balanced decision that grappled with difficult issues at play and arrived at a reasonable outcome. Perhaps the unease with the appeal panel's finding of professional misconduct stems in part from the severity of the penalty that was handed down to Mr. Groya. A one-month license suspension and a $200,000 cost award may seem harsh to some, but that misses the point. That issue is not before us on this appeal, nor is it a basis upon which to disturb the appeal panel's finding of misconduct. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.